so uh, welcome to Duffin. I think the final e- final episode of this year, and um, amazingly enough, we have a repeat guest on this episode, episode number fifty six, all the way from episode number twenty seven. Eric, welcome back. Hello, I'm happy to be back. This is awesome. You're the first repeat guest. How does it feel? Like you know, this is like an achievement uh, or achievement unlocked. <laughs> yeah. Maybe like a broken record, I guess. No, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, it's it it it's really cool. I listen to the podcast, so it's cool to come back on. I mean, I, I'm an achievement for Defen Podcast itself because we never thought we were going to be long enough to have somebody come back. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not an achievement for you. <laughs> it's just for us. <laughs> like, we, we, we're still on air. We'd have you on every week. Yeah, thank you for having me on because I know there's a lot of great people to talk to. You didn't have to repeat. You're finding cool guests all the time. So, yeah, but you're still cool, so that's good, you know. And also, you've been doing a lot of stuff, so it's uh, it's nice to catch up, you know. Yeah, yeah. Although you, you and I, Ray, we talk. We talk now and again. We talk now and again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So. How is it going, by the way? I mean, I, I never pay attention to anything other than Defen. You know, obviously, Defen is the... It takes up all your time, I know. We know. Exactly. Well, no, yeah, practically, like 19 hours a day, you know? Come on. V- Vijay is actually <laughs> going going to another language podcast. You're, you're doing a Rust language podcast. So you know, <laughs> we, we had one episode. Be, be so, like, uh, no, you've had two, haven't you? Yeah, two, yeah. yeah. I mean, the first one is more like... Uh, I know more about his podcast than he does. <laughs> <laughs> you're learning rust vijay yeah yeah i'm trying to it's it's another one of those things like you know trying to get to the non-gc languages from the history i tried visual c plus plus c plus plus long time ago mm. c c plus plus that's how i started so i forgot how cozy it is with the with the gc stuff so i'm like oh let's try this shit and then it's it's a different world completely it's it's fun Kind of a functional but uh, non GC stuff. Yeah. So he has, he has a weird Rust podcast, which, like you say, has done two episodes. Maybe he'll do more next year. But uh, but yeah, me and Eric, we, we do something proper. You know, we do. Uh... <laughs> it it has a prop in it. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, uh, the nice thing about Apropos, which is the YouTube channel, is that we've been doing that. For, I don't know. Actually, maybe is, is that about a year now? If even longer. Than yeah, a little so. over a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really nice, you know. I think it's uh, we never have any guests on there, so we can just <laughs> please ourselves. Just... I think we had a guest one time. <laughs> oh yeah, we had a, we've had one. Or two. Yeah, we had Stuart Holloway. Yeah, so we do have we have royalty yeah. on. They're not really guests, yeah. are they? You know. No, that's a nice way to insult our guests. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, don't know but luckily, <laughs> but luckily, exactly. So Eric should know. <laughs> So what have we been up to, Eric, in the, in the last uh, two years oh, and whatnot, uh, eight months, nine months? Where do I begin? Mm. Uh, <laughs> well, the big thing I'm working on is my book. I started that maybe a year and a half ago, to, you know, I'll round it wow. up to an, a year and a half. Um, yeah, it's a lot of work and it's way longer, taking way longer than I thought. Um but it's coming along and it's it's going to be a really great book. It's all about functional programming and uh, it's not in Clojure. Everyone asks me that because I'm like a Clojure Why guy. do you hit Clojure, Eric? Um, Can I ask you <laughs> the first question on, on the, the Deaf and Clojure podcast? Why do you hit Clojure? Come on. 
<laughs> Where do I begin? <laughs> yeah, I know. I have a blog post ready. For, I mean, like almost published about all the things that are wrong with closure. Bring, bring the holiday cheer, <laughs> yes. Um, no, I mean, specifically, I think that um, the ideas, uh, I mean, to put it shortly, my, my goal for the book is to make functional programming accessible to a wide audience. Mm-hmm. And starting with closure and having to teach closure to people, you know, it's just not what it's not, it wouldn't fulfill the goal. Um, plus it would be kind of preaching to the choir. Like we already believe in immutable data and stuff like that. So there's no, you know, it would just be kind of, um, uh, I don't know, masturbatory Ooh. to just, let's, <laughs> let's just talk about all the good. Um, so mental masturbation, you mean? Yeah, yeah. like an intellectual. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting starting point, though, isn't it? Because if you're not gonna, yeah. I mean, obviously, it, what, what I'm interested in is like the precepts of functional programming. You know, and listen to your mm. podcast as well, because I think it, you know that's a, that's a really interesting one. Because um, you talk about functional programming on your podcast, but you talk about Haskell and Clojure and JavaScript and all these various things, you know, about, but you identify yourself in that podcast as a Clojure programmer. Uh, so, yeah. but why, is that something you do in the book? You identify yourself as a Clojure programmer and that's your influence mm-hmm. or is it like, is it, is it like a hidden hand of uh, functional programming? That's, that's it's, the big, it's, it's the big reveal at the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, you just learned closure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> just put a few parentheses at the beginning, you know, the parentheses at the end, and then fill in the middle. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think I'd talk that much about closure in the book. Um, except where it's like, oh, you know, this is how closure does it. This is how, you know, you're learning the real thing. You know, this is how other right, languages do right. it, including Haskell. Um, but I don't ever say like, I'm a closure programmer and I'm teaching right. this stuff. I do think that closure gives a very useful perspective to functional programming. Um, it's, <laughs> let, let me just contrast it with another. I think very well designed language Haskell. Mm-hmm. Um, it focuses much more on the types. It's sort of like let's get this language out of the way, have immutable data and and pure functions and um, for uh, first class functions, you know. And now let's get to the types because we we that's where the interesting stuff is. And as closure programmers, I don't think we we believe that so much. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of what the book is doing is taking those closure approaches to functional programming, um, and, and bringing them to a wider audience. Yeah. Because one, one, sorry, uh, like, as, yeah, well, I was going to say that, uh, just to give a little bit more context in the book of, about the book, the examples, I need to give code examples. And so I use JavaScript for that just to make it have as wide a, an appeal as possible. So you don't have to learn the language before you start doing the functional programming stuff. Uh, I chose JavaScript because, I mean, it is a very popular language, but it's also readable by people who know Java or C or, you know, you can, you can and I mean, 
it's readable. Like it says function, you know, when you create a function, you don't have to you learn. You don't use the uh, ES7 syntax then. With the arrow I don't on. use any of the new stuff. It's all the old school JavaScript. It's the OG JavaScript. Yeah. I, I mean, and, you know, I've had people in comments say like, oh, you should use some of those new features and use let instead of const. And I'm like, like, I don't want to get into a discussion about let versus const. You know, that's not <laughs> the point of the book. I'm just using var everywhere. Like, just, you know. <laughs> I know that some some people are going to be like, oh, but you got to teach. It's not teaching JavaScript. That's not what I'm doing. I'm I'm I don't want a Java programmer to come in and be like, what is the difference between let and const? Sometimes you use let, sometimes you use const. I don't want that to be a on their mind. But it is it is um, if you if you see like teaching functional programming, what I felt is like these days every type of programming methodology that you want to learn is attached to a language, right? It's, it's very difficult to abstract it away and then explain, only I'm going to explain functional programming to you, and then you can implement that in any language you like. Some languages are more flexible to implement this. Some languages look horrible when you implement this. So I don't think it's an easy, uh, what do you call it? Like <laughs> pedagogy or I don't know the English word, like the teaching method for yeah. functional programming is tricky. But I understand your approach because you're not going to take, you're not teaching JavaScript. I think you said it, you know, very, very, in a very nice way that you're not teaching JavaScript. You're just teaching functional programming fundamentals. Right. And this is how you can write in version one of JavaScript and then whatever. And then later you can pick it up. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, what you said is, is really true. It is hard. And um, that was one of my complaints. And one of the reasons I started the book is, is because so many, um, so many books about functional programming are either like super academic and, yeah. you know, they don't really start with the basics. You kind of have to be, I don't know, have a PhD <laughs> advisor, like guide yeah. you into it. Um, or uh, they're just about a particular language and one language's approach mm -hmm. to functional programming. Yeah. yeah. But, but completely, I, I feel like doing a disservice to the beginner who just like would would benefit from just identifying pure functions like yeah. that is a huge thing and i think it's the it's it's the start and, and everyone like has a little footnote somewhere like one one sentence like okay and these should be pure functions like what yeah. no that's that's it like that's the meat of it that that's where you should start like mm. talk about pure functions why they're better uh, how do you identify the impure functions and how do you like refactor it so that you have less code in your impure function, more code in your pure functions. And so my book spends the whole first seven chapters just on this idea. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I find, I, I've, I've said this many times, but I will say it again to you, and I, I'm interested in what your take on it is, is that I think, as a branding exercise, functional programming has got an absolute huge problem because functional is a completely stupid name for a programming style. You know, object orientation is has got some. It, it, there's something behind that. You know, um, sort of imperative. There is something behind that. Functional is just so overloaded these days, and I also don't think it properly describes what FP really is. So I think. 
what, what's your kind of, I mean, I know that you, your book title doesn't use functional programming. It uses, you talk about simplicity. So what, how do you feel about the, like the branding issues around functional programming? Right. So I'll say the book just for the audience. Uh, Grokking Simplicity is the name of the book. Um, but that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I didn't, I didn't give you the questions beforehand. So sorry. About that. No, 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 it's, but it's a really, it's a good question. And it's, it's, um, it's a problem that in one of my drafts, I like tackled it head on. Like, why am I, I kind of re- redefine everything, like give it everything new terms yeah, yeah. because I feel like the terms are very confusing. Yes. Uh, functional programming, um, it makes you think that it has something to do with functions. And a lot of the definitions, including the one on Wikipedia, make it all about functions. And they'll say uh, it's programming with mathematical functions, otherwise yeah. known as pure functions. And um, I think that that just does such a disservice to what we do day to day. I mean, as for instance, as closure programmers, we use side effects. We use... Um, a state, mutable state, but we're still doing functional programming. And I feel like we have a lot to say about state and side yeah, effects. I'm, I'm kind of like going a bit higher level in that because I yeah. think the notion okay. of something that is functional means that it's something yeah. that works uh, in right. the English language. You know, uh, it's overloaded in that sense, you know, that well, of course programs right. should be functional. You know, it feels like it's kind of like a philosophical debate rather than a kind pragmatic debate you know that's why i mean haven't we haven't we already moved uh, multiple levels from that by introducing things calling variables which are not actually variables and but we we already overload them used so many mathematical terms in like totally different ways variables variables, they are variables Why, why are they not variables well a variable in math doesn't change mathematics is wrong there because <laughs> no, a variable in math doesn't change. It varies. It varies. Yeah, so if, if, if it's variable, then it must be subject to change. No, so, it, so, okay, this is a common confusion, especially among programmers. Like when you have a variable in in um, in a formula or something, a uh, mathematical formula, it varies with each like use of that formula. So in this time, we'll say x equals 1. Well, let's try it with x equals 10, right? Yeah. But within the run, yeah. it doesn't no, change. And it so is immutable. We think of a variable as programmers. We think of a place to store a value that will take different, val- different yeah. values throughout mm, the course right. of it. And so then we think, but how is it a constant variable? It's like, well, it's... <laughs> The original variables <laughs> were constant for that run. Yeah. But right? isn't that the thing, though? Isn't yeah, that yeah, one of these? Yeah. It's like we're, 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 we are fighting these languages, you know, like you said. Yes. Yeah. And then functions, like, well, it's a function. It says function yeah, exactly. in JavaScript, the type function. Yeah, but it's not a mathematical exactly. function. Yeah. You know, so, so that's why I throw away all the terms. So I don't use, I mean, I, I explain the terms, but they're not what I use yeah. in the book. Um, hmm. I use actions, calculations, and data. So distinguishing mm. these three things is like what I consider the gateway, the mm. first paradigm shift uh, it requires being able to distinguish these. So what, how things. do you, I mean, I get, mm. I get data. I mean, data is definitely different mm. from actions and calculations. 
So, but it's not very you know, on first blush. I mean, I, I've, I've listened to your podcast. I do know the difference. But but when when I first hear those two things, actions and calculations, I'm not exactly sure what what the difference is. So maybe it's, that could be worth going over. Is, isn't calculating an action? Well, there. So okay. I mean, in in this context, because you know it's closure people, I feel like we can go kind of deep on this. Yeah. Um, it's true. Calculations are actions. They're subsets. A calculation is a subset. Calculations, the set of calculations is a subset of actions. And data is a subset of calculations. Because mm. we know that, to, like, if you wanted to make a Turing machine, it would be actions, right? It'd be like moving the head, the read head, reading a mm. mutable value from underneath wherever you are. So it's all actions. But you can simulate calculations using that Turing complete system. Mm-hmm. And then we know by lambda calculus that you can represent data using functions, mm-hmm. using mm-hmm. mathematical functions. So they are subsets. The thing yeah. is, you like you don't want to be working on that like subset hierarchy all the time. You want you want to get the benefits mm-hmm. of the calculations and the benefits of the data. So you kind of stick you you use the compiler's features to stick within that um that domain, the calculations, the data, the actions. Does that explain it? I understand it. What what you're doing now is you're saying that actions are side effecting. That's and that's the difference between calculations and actions in your vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. Actions actions are what you might call an impure function, mm. except function. The problem is function like sounds like a feature of a language, right? right. Like a JavaScript yeah. function. Yeah. Because a lot of actions are not functions. The action might be an assignment statement, right? Mm. Or the action might be, uh, you know, it could be a method, which is kind of like a function. But it could be an operator. It could be the plus-plus operator. So it's really, mm. I'm, I'm trying to just like totally use new terms that are outside, that don't have features attached to them. Yeah. So you, you're using JavaScript to explain these concepts in the book? Yeah. Why, why JavaScript? Um, because it is very popular. I think it goes back to the beginning question, like, why do you hate closure, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of all the parentheses. That's what it is. My parentheses keys broke off of my keyboard, yeah. and now I'm just tired of uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> so why JavaScript? Too many. Um, why JavaScript? Um, I like semicolons. You don't need no, uh, JavaScript, man. <laughs> but you don't need them. But you can use this, them. This, I love the. I love the <laughs> JavaScript people get really upset. You know, some people really yeah. don't like Java, semicolons either. You know, so it, it, I think it's like it's like spicing up your your pizza. You know, <laughs> are you using semicolons? Because if you are. Then you know you'll get a bunch of hate from people who like ah, you don't need them, and if you don't use them, then it'll be even worse. So what's your what, what well? I think you can you can have two versions of the book: <laughs> one with semicolons, one with the other one. So you can buy whatever you like, you know. And thought of that, you can sell to both markets. Yeah, yeah exactly. No inclusivity. That's, yeah, that's yeah. important. Wow. <laughs> the, uh, All right. So. Well, I mean, I do insert unnecessary parentheses in my JavaScript as well. I just surround every value in parentheses just to get a feel. I don't want to lose my... 
my closure. My closure. Drinking it in there. Open close. <laughs> yeah. I need my rainbow parents to get some rainbow. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all, all in good fun. We all have funny languages. Um, but why JavaScript? It's really popular. So, um, you know, there's an automatic reach there. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, like I said before, the syntax is readable. Even if they don't know the ins and outs of JavaScript, they can read an if statement. They can read a for loop. It's, you know, it, it's just something that they they don't have to um, spend too much energy on. Yeah. And of course, where yeah. it is something that they wouldn't know if they weren't a JavaScript programmer, I do explain it. But mm. it's still readable. They can still read it. And if you name the functions, you know, in clear clear names, they'll they'll get it. Hmm. And and who's the target audience? Because if you if you explain all these concepts, actions, calculations, and data, and then eventually you need to use these techniques in in whatever the language that you pick up, right? Yeah. So how how do you drive that home to to the people who are reading the book, or what is your plan? So the the publisher has pegged it at two to three years of experience. Programmers for two to three years who already know a language, uh, yeah. they already you know. They've gotten into some weeds, <laughs> you know, yeah, made a yeah. mess, and yeah. um, they need some techniques to help them through. Um, mm. The way to make it stick, to make it practical to them, is I have a lot of exercises, um, step through refactorings of the code to make you know some some JavaScript function more. Uh, I want to say functional. But you yeah. know, just separate out, look, these are the side effects. These are the not like you don't need, you don't really need to use a global variable here. You could use a local. And so that's kind of know. like in the weeds a bit, Eric. I mean, it's at a high level, what is your kind of pitch mm-hmm. around like, like functional programming? What are you kind of trying to sell to these developers? You know, when they've got their, they've got themselves like a few, a few years of experience and, you know, why, why should they bother with functional programming? Is, are you answering, you must be answering that question as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm a- attacking it from three mm-hmm. vectors. I'm saying it helps you do reuse, testing, and maintenance, maintainability. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the like practical things I can sell about it. Um, I think that there are, there's also a group of people who want to do functional programming, but they, they um, can't find inroads into the, into the current literature. And um, so there, there's a little bit of that too, but you know, that's not something you can really sell. It's hard to find those people and, and target them. So really I focus on those three that like these, one of the reasons you're having, you know, a ton of bugs, it's hard to maintain is you're just doing mutation mm-hmm. everywhere, right? And it's much more maintainable if you like segregate that off into a little piece of code that you can spend extra time on, pay extra attention to. The other stuff is really testable. You just write test for it and just you can leave it alone. Um, and then the reuse also is... Um, I mean, this is a, going back to the closure stuff. Is like pulling things apart. Like we have a tendency to think that the bigger the thing is, the more it does, the more reusable it'll be. Like yeah. you, know, you think of some kitchen gadget that 
can do like 17 different things. You think, oh, it's so reusable. I can reuse it in 17 mm -hmm. different ways. But really, the most reusable thing you have in your kitchen is like the knife, the pan, you know, the, you know just the basics, the like one function tools are being used for, you know, mm -hmm. almost everything. So, um, so that's, that's the approach I'm taking. Like you can actually, um, make things more reusable by splitting them apart instead of having it do everything, like make it, you, you know, at least you get to reuse a part cause you might get part mm -hmm. of it wrong. Right. And so mm -hmm. if there is in two separate parts, you don't have to rewrite both. Yeah. So it's, um, I think one of the long time ago, maybe two years ago or something, I read a blog post calling like programming has these three tribes. Like first tribe is um, programming as a mathematical thing, like applied mathematics. And then it's basically Haskell, even closure, lispy stuff into that one. And then the second one is like programming is hacking the hardware, just C, C++. So, you know, you have this, uh, I think that's the first time I read this mechanical sympathy, like you need to know what the machine does or something. Uh, right, 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 right. <laughs> and, huh. and then there is a, so C, C++ fall into that category, that tribe of programming. And the third tribe is, I just want to get shit done. So I'm going to hack something in Python and JavaScript and go home. So okay. <laughs> it's like to, to make things work. Right. So for me, I think those three seem to be valid. And do you, do you agree with this, with this kind of classification? And if so, then how do you see this? functional things applying to three different areas? That is a really uh, insightful triad there. And I'd love to read. I peaked, <laughs> finally. <laughs> um, I finally peaked by regurgitating some blog posts that I read like three years ago. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm thinking about it though. Like you need all three, right? You need yeah. all three. Because like, sure, you need to get stuff done, but that kind of development is going to make a but mess. But maybe it's what he's saying is yeah. that the first one is kind of got already. Second one might be difficult to reach because of the the kind of performance issues or whatever. And it's more like the third mm -hmm. one maybe is that's the interesting target for your book. I don't know. They get things done. Yeah, because yeah, this is, I mean, I really start from in the book. I really start from, and, and thanks for all these like challenging <laughs> questions, by the way. Um, <laughs> Ooh, we improved from compost and PHP. <laughs> well, that's the last thing about time. compost, you know, is it gradually kind of, you know, uh, improves. You know? <laughs> this is a, um, this all, is a <laughs> all the crap that we have been collecting finally being useful <laughs> after two years. Decomposing rich humus. The rich loamy soil in which your your weeds can grow and flower. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Come on. Finally. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> okay. What was the yes. question again? Yeah, it was about... Um, the getting things done people. Uh, yeah, the getting yeah. things done people, I think they'll make a mess, right? So my yeah. book, I mean, just that's if that's the only attitude you have, I, I think that that's clear. Mm. Um, yeah. The, the book approaches, like the first part of the first code you see is here's an existing system and here's how we would just like simply get the next thing done. And mm. then it starts to say, okay, but this is what we would do to clean it up using functional mm. principles. And yeah. uh, it's just a lot of refactoring. And like, I don't know, I code that way. 
I code something mm-hmm. like, what's the easiest thing to get this thing working? And then yeah. I come back later and I'm like, oh, this is a mess. I, I don't even know what's going on. I, I clean it up. Um, I don't know. Um, the mechanical sympathy only comes in if I need to optimize it or something. Yeah, yeah. I feel. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, this is something that I've been thinking a lot lately, thinking about all the, of course, in Enclosure and, and Python. I do a lot of Python day-to-day working with the data related stuff and and I see when when I when I pair with somebody who's who's doing python we just do something oh you know let's let's just take it straight through happy path if it works we are done let's go home mm-hmm. and then on on the other hand when I'm trying to use scala or rust for example or haskell there there you have to think about how to how this is going to fail mm-hmm. and capture that thing you know all the, the the result types or the option types or whatnot and that, so that's a kind of a different thing and closure seems to be falling in between somewhere. It's, it's super productive because of all the REPL and these kind of things. And also somehow because of immutability and all these things being available, I think my life becomes slightly easier. So yeah. I, I could see moving between these three. But as you said, I, I can totally agree. Like, you know, if I'm writing something in Python, I'm like always waiting for when it is going to fail at some point. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then try to fix that bug. Right. And so especially dealing with data, you know, it's it's, it's a pretty tricky situation to deal Isn't with. Isn't it a problem, essentially? Like, I mean, I know you, I know I agree with the JavaScript choice in the sense that it has got broad reach and it's got a kind of interesting, what should we say? It's got an interesting uh, functional nature, you know, because, you know, there is an argument uh, that that he was going to write it as a kind of version of scheme. Um, but, but then he yeah. was like, "Yeah, yeah you've yeah. got to put this. You've got to put these. Make it look like C because we want to attract Java developers." Blah blah blah. But, uh, who knows what that? You know, I don't think that that story is fully told yet. But but certainly the concept of you know FP was in there from the beginning. That's for sure. Um, but my my question is, and right. this is one of the things that when I'm like trying to motivate ClojureScript people towards ClojureScript rather than JavaScript is that you know I talk about kind of defaults rather than possibilities because with JavaScript, like most mm-hmm. Turing complete languages, like you said earlier on, you can do everything. But the question is, what is mm-hmm. idiomatic? What does the language help you to do? What does it make straightforward and simple? And those are the kind of, that's why functional programming languages are functional programming languages. And that's why object-oriented programming languages are all languages. You can do everything you want to do in C. Yeah. Knock yourself out. You can be FP, you can be OO, you can be declarative, you can do everything everything you want. You can do logic there. So the question is, you know, assuming you're going with JavaScript, do you ever allude to the fact that you know there are other languages that could make this more idiomatic, make it more supportive? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> By the way, By the way closure. <laughs> after <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah, <laughs> after twenty chapters, this is the only chapter you need. You know, you know, closure. Move on. Right, right. Oh, it's sort of like in that book about Java concurrency. Right. The joke yeah. that Rich Hickey read it and wrote closure so that he wouldn't yeah, have yeah, to yeah. do all the stuff in the book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, because it's really true. You read it and you're like, "Oh my god, I have to do that!" Like it's so yeah. hard. Um, okay, so it's a it's a really good question. So I look at it like this: If you really want to learn functional programming, you need to do immersion. You need to get into a functional right. language, 
and, uh, you know, try to solve problems with the constraints it's putting on you because that's what functional languages do. They constrain you. They make you use immutable data. They, you know, if it's typed language, they're making you use the type system. You're going to, you know, you're, you're going to be forced to do it. And that is the best way to develop the thought patterns and the mindset that you need. However, as a pedagogical tool to teach the concepts, I actually think JavaScript is a good mm. language for it. Um, there might be better ones, I don't know, but JavaScript was good because, for instance, when I, if I were to introduce immutability mm. in Clojure, it would be like, okay, it's just a language feature. Uh, I don't need to know how yeah. it works. I'm just going to use it. Whereas in JavaScript, mm. it's a discipline. You don't get it by default. You have to do it. So you get to see all the work that it takes to use immutable data. You know, basically you do a copy on write or a copy on read. And you have immutability. And so now you understand it. You understand the cost of the discipline and the difficulty of doing it. Okay, now you're going to appreciate when you go to closure and... Uh, have to is, use it. Is that how it works? I mean, is that yeah. the feedback you're getting? Because I'm interested whether people, because like you say, if people are having to suffer pain, people don't like that, you know. Um, but I guess what you're saying is you can you can you can see it from first principles, maybe, you know. So yeah, there are libraries that help you out here, and there are other languages that can help you out even more. But actually. This is like the like uh, a first principles kind of model. It is a first principles model, and it's also like you know, I say it's like getting back to basics in functional programming. I would be happy if people just could identify mutation, right? Like, mm. oh, this is this is unsafe to call because it's going to change the the you know JavaScript array I pass it. Like if they could, if they could know that, right? Or like, oh, I can't hold on to this thing because I don't trust that something else that doesn't have a reference that's going to mutate. Like if they could do that, that would be a huge win. So if people start putting bangs at the end of their function names, that's already a start, basically. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just be careful. You can do it. Here's here's the <laughs> rope. You want to hang yourself? You know, go ahead. But but. It's it's that kind of thing that I really think that um, other yeah. books don't talk about. They don't, they don't, they just do not spend any time. They don't spend enough time. Like I said, they might be a, a sentence, a paragraph, but they don't spend enough time for beginners to realize, like for instance, that the plus plus operator actually mm. does three things. It reads the value out, it adds one to it, and yeah. it stores it back. And so that's three. Things happening. One of them is a calculation, the adding, right? But the other two are actions, and you can interleave another plus plus operator and another thread between those, and it uh, you know gives you weird mistakes that only happen sometimes. The funny thing is, I remember I remember reading that um, Swift does not allow plus plus, and they had a they had a very long like discussion about this because they were saying yeah. Exactly to your point, you know, is that it has all these magical properties that right. cause a lot of unknown bugs. And so, yes, it's convenient. Yes, it is sort of, you know, expressive. But actually, mm. 
it's just too dangerous and too buggy and you know the the things are not what's going on is not obvious enough so right. so they actually disallow it which um uh, you i mean you could disallow it or you could make it an atomic operation you know right. you could say well if you're going to do it we're going to put a transaction around this and nothing else can look at this variable in the meantime and you know it'll slow everything down yeah um because it does look like it's a single thing. Coming back to the so so the book is called Grokking Functional Programming. Grokking Simplicity. Simplicity. There is okay, sorry. Book no. called Grok- My brain already linked simplicity with this, functional this programming. This is an interesting point about that. Actually, it's like what we've been. Where does the simplicity come in? How do you? How do you? I know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, uh, come on. <laughs> I so that's the thing. I probably need to go through and. Just just use the word simplicity a lot more um, in the book. Um, yeah. It it's kind of just a, like a historical accident that it's called grokking simplicity. It probably would have been called grokking functional programming, except they already have a book mm. by that title. I like simplicity and, yeah. by the way. I mean, I think it's a great. Yeah. Uh, me, I think it's actually a re, a good rebranding of functional programming. Uh-huh. You know, mm-hmm. because I, I think uh, functional programming is terrible. Like I said at the beginning. And I think simplicity is much better because that's really what you're trying to aim for, you know, clarity, mm-hmm. simplicity. Yeah. And it's an, another aspect of the closure influence mm. that, right. that, um, that I was talking about. Call back um, to closure. Yeah. We're on yeah. the closure podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. The simplicity is all about, you know, pulling functions apart into more reusable pieces it's about um the complexity of having so many actions and they can interleave Mm. right and so the complexity is like how many ways can they interleave so it's you know it's a quantitative thing if you have if you have two actions in each thread there's, you know, I think six ways they can interleave, something like that. But if you have 12 actions in... But what about JavaScript single threading? You know, because that's what people will say about JavaScript as well. Don't worry about uh, the threading because it's it's all fine, yeah? And they do say that, don't they? The problem is once you have Ajax, you have any kind of asynchronous call, then you're back to, I mean, they're not threads, but they're different timelines because you will chain an Ajax call after another one and after another one. And that's, there's multiple of these chains happening at the same time and you don't know when each one is going to be called. Uh, yeah. The callbacks are going to be called. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also have this other problem of stuff is happening on the server, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you read a value and you think it's current and you add 10 to it and send it back. Well, what if someone has sent has already changed it, right? So you need to be thinking mm. about this in a distributed systems world. Mm. I mean, I think that so a fun, functional programming has been sold as like we're going to need it because of multiple cores on our machines, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it certainly helps with multiple cores. That's not, that's not untrue but we were also promised like thousands of cores by now like 10 yeah. years ago they're like, it's gonna double every year and you're and it hasn't we have like what 16 on like 16 yeah yeah like we we are though facing all these distributed 
programming problems that we weren't facing or we weren't maybe aware that we were facing them 10 years ago. We didn't have so much Ajax. Um, you, you would even have just like one database and like now we realize, oh, we've got a client running on every browser and we've, we've, uh, distributed our application to all these microservices and each one has its own database and they have to sync up somehow. And this is where functional programming and this is why it's actually, um, being, you know, used right now. It's not going to, um, that the scope of functional programming is not going to go across these boundaries of systems. Right. Right, No. how, How do you, how do you see that then? Because within the system, it makes sense. Yeah, functional programming does not give us a model for programming the cloud, right? Yeah, exactly. What it does is it gets us to ask the right questions. It gives, it says, oh, this is an action, even though um, it seemed like I was just writing something or reading something from the database. Like, oh, that was yeah. actually a message that got passed to a different machine and the database interpreted it and sent back an answer. So it's actually two messages. You know, it, it, object-oriented programmers don't think about that. Um, yeah. I mean, they do. They do. When they get to a certain maturity, they know this, but they're not thinking of it as part of their paradigm, right? Mm. They are, um, they're, they're having to learn it, but... It's not, it's not part of the paradigm. And in fact, a lot of object-oriented programmers, if I could, you know, generalize, um, mm. would, they, they try to bury it, right? So they'll, they'll yeah. take the ORM, right? And they'll wrap it around the database and then maybe add another layer on top and, and think that that's going to make the difficulties of dealing with mutable state go away. Mm. It's, it's going to like, oh, it's going to give it a nice interface. But like, no, what you need is to, to pull it out. You need to yeah. not wrap it up. You need to separate out the stuff that is dangerous, you know, the mutation. And, and you still have it. You need the database. But then you, separately, you have like all the business logic and stuff mm. to keep it, keep it pure. So just, I mean, I think you do talk about this on your podcast at least. I'm guessing it's going to come up in your book. Things like um, idempotency, for example, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that seems to me to be a kind of answer, if you like, to um, to yeah. the distributed um, database problem, um, because you, know, you need to know that actions can be repeated, essentially, or in your case, right. calculations can be repeated. And th- which, actually, which do you think? <laughs> so- actions, actions. You need to be able to. Um, you know, I mean, the example I give is you want to send an email exactly once, right? You don't want it to send it zero times and you don't want to send it twice. Um, and so if you don't get, if you don't hear back, you make some HTTP post Mm. and it gave you a 500 error. Like, Mm. did it send the email though? That's what I really care about. And, and you can't know, like maybe it timed out and you never received it, but maybe the server crashed after it sent the email, right? Or the network got down before the request came. Like, you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so the Mm -hmm. answer, you know, for robustness that you need in a distributed system is to be able to send it again, send the same request again and assume that they will remember, oh, we already sent this one and we won't Mm -hmm. send it again. Uh, and mm. so that means you need the action to be item potent. Mm. Uh, mm. So yes, 
that's in action being unimportant. What about transactionality? How do, where, where does that fit into your scheme? So in, in the book, we are going to um, develop uh, transactional, uh, like it's sort of like an, a closure atom, but that works mm-hmm. over asynchronous um, tr- uh, changes, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, you might do a read and then do some Ajax request and then use the value from that to do a write back into it. Mm-hmm. And so you need, it's, it's got to be transactional across that whole thing. So basically, you have to queue them up. Right. You, know, you, have to, you have to. You just have to. You know, wait for everybody. Um, uh, we're going to do the regular atom, but that's easy in uh, in JavaScript because there's no threads. So the ordering, the ordering is like straightforward because it's just just every it's just single threaded ordering, so you don't need to worry about the ordering problem. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. The the ordering happens automatically. Uh, as long as you don't have any asynchrony. So you say if you pass a pure function to the atom, it's going to take the current value, run it on the fun- run the function on it. The return value is going to be the new value. Hmm. So is this uh, so grokking simplicity? Is it now available as like a beta book or something yeah. that people can take? A look at Wait, before we get into yeah. that, you know, let's let him pimp it out a bit later. Okay, <laughs> let's carry on with some of the some of the technical discussions. Okay. <laughs> Hold on a second. That's 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 an insult to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the thing I was going to ask you about was another thing to do with like functional programming, grokking simplicity, where maybe it's kind of at odds. But I'm interested in your thoughts about this. Is high order functions because to me high order functions are. I, I don't know if they're undersold or oversold. To be honest, I don't. I I, I do use them. Most days myself mm-hmm. in closure, um, but uh, obviously with mapping and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, also I I will write programs that take functions and, but I rarely return functions to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering, you know, what what your take on like the higher order, of higher because obviously it's important when when you're talking about functional programming, or is that something that you allied, or is you know are you are you focused on this concept? No, oh, good question. Um... So higher order functions, I think, are really important. Um, they're, they're the focus of the second part of the book. Um, so the, the, you know, the first part, the idea is just let's just identify actions, calculations, and data. That's where it, it's sort of like what's the biggest bang at the level that they're at? Like the biggest bang is like know that that is unsafe. <laughs> we can't do that yeah. willy-nilly. We have to put some boundaries around it. And then the second big bang is, well, you got these first class functions. And so what can you do with them? And so we're, that's an introduction to like map, filter, and reduce. Mm. Uh, it's an, also an introduction to higher order actions. Mm. So this is stuff like being able to pass an action to a queue to make sure that only one gets run at a time in the right order, Right. So you want to introduce the declarativeness of actions, so you can declare and then execute them, right? Right, time. exactly. That that's that's um, you know, I think that's a hard concept for people to to yeah. know that like you don't have to send the email. You can yeah, you can have a function that will send the email, and you can call yeah. it when you're ready. Um, yeah. that that is exactly the the kind of mindset shift that has to happen to 
get yeah. first order functions. But in day-to-day life, we are used to this one, right? If I if I make a list of things to do, like you know, go to the market, buy milk, then go and get a tram, right? Then it doesn't mean that immediately, second by reading the second one, I'm going to get the tram first. But but you see, what 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 happens is you you when you write the program, yeah, you are already at one level of yeah. running removed, right? So I'm writing the program, do X, do Y, do Z. That's you know in yeah. my main, right? So yeah, they, yeah. people think, well, that's it. Like I've already made yeah. that. And so every time I run this program, it's going to run everything. Yeah. What they don't realize is they can do it again inside the program <laughs> and, and make it so that this thing is going to write the list and return mm-hmm. it. And this other thing is going to run the list. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. that's the, um, that's the shift that I think you need to, that, that people will need to make. And it's going to mm-hmm. be like, you know, a lot of, a lot of people get map filter and reduce. They understand, uh, you know, how to use it practically. Oh, I have a list and I want a different list. You know, I'm just going to run a map over it. Mm. But what they don't understand is, is how much can be done as a total pipeline. Like all your work is done as like chaining map, map, filter, filter. You know, you can, you can do the whole, almost the whole program with that. Mm. Um, and so that we're going to focus a lot on that. We're going to focus a lot on, um, the actions side. So that's kind of just the calculation stuff, the action Mm -hmm. side, uh, these chapters are actually mostly written. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel, so this is a thing I have about functional programming. Like everyone, um, talks about pure functions and how great they are, but I think we have as functional programmers, we have a lot more to say about actions. Right. And you know, mutable state, and, and like we, like you were talking about idempotence, Ray. Like, like I don't know of, of object-oriented people saying this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about stuff like that. We have a whole array of things that we we know are important: transactionality. Like we um, we discredit ourselves, right? We don't give ourselves enough credit that. Actions are a first-class part of our paradigm. Impure mm-hmm. functions are part of the paradigm. It's not just pure functions. No. We're not just avoiding actions. No, we are treating them in a special way because they are so volatile, so dangerous. They're the source of bugs. And so we have all these things that we do to uh, you know, maintain the order between two uh, actions, like in different threads at least make sure that they don't happen at the same time. You know, one has yeah. to go first. Um, the, the, we, we, we discredit ourselves. There's a lot of good stuff in functional programming languages that help you deal with actions. So one of the things that, I mean, this is a, like, let's say in the closure world, at least it's caused a bit of controversy recently um, with spec is this uh, this speech by Rich about uh, speculative? I think, or maybe I, I don't really remember the name of the I don't remember the name of the, uh, the the talk actually. But it's where he says that the optionality is a problem, um, and that's why we need spec two. Um, mm-hmm. We were joking earlier, by the way, that that spec started at the same time as uh, as Defen, so it's kind of very mm-hmm. with. With spec about the same time that we're experimenting with um, with 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 podcasting, and they've got spec two, and we've got Eric two. 
So maybe it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm out of alpha there. Um. <laughs> we made it. We've got him back. <laughs> correct. Yes. <laughs> we make it better. We know what functional programming is now. Um, no, but what I meant was that, uh, like, so is something like, because, you know, you say, you say it's like the optionality. How do you, how do you know if, if things have worked or not? You know, because that's the, 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 the the classic yeah. functional thing, this like, you know, it's it's the the option thing, the monad right. thing, you know, it's like it's something, it's nothing. So how how do you do how do you tackle that kind of thing in the book? Or is that a is that a sort of version two or chapter three or whatever it is? So um I am gonna get to that in part three. Some some form of data modeling. The problem is the you know, to answer your question, the reason it's hard to answer your question is that that is the furthest part of the book. That's the wow. last part. And I haven't. It's optional. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's maybe going to happen. No, the, I don't know what I'm going to say. Right, right, right. Um, well, I, I don't know the specifics. The, the thing that, to bring it back to simplicity, mm. the thing about data modeling is that it makes your program simpler when you get the data model right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you have a correct data model, you have fewer if statements. And if statements um, are um, multiplicative of complexity. Mm -hmm. So if you have two if statements in a row, if you count the number of paths through those two if statements, it's two times two, because it's two branches in the first if times two mm -hmm. in the second if. And if you get your data model wrong, that means that you have to kind of reassemble, like, like figure out what you really have. Mm -hmm. um, so the example that um, you, you can give all the time is like, well, what if you have two Booleans, but you only have three possible states? Two Booleans mm -hmm. can represent four states, and you only have three. Mm. So you know, here's an example. Um, I used to work for a company and it, we had a workflow engine and something needed to be signed off by two people. Mm. So we would have a, a Boolean for the first person signed off and a Boolean for the second person signed off. But that doesn't really make sense because what, how, you know, you could in your code with a bug put the second person has checked off and the first person hasn't checked off yet. Mm. And that doesn't make sense. Like it, it shouldn't be representable. And so yeah. a better model would have been nobody has signed off mm. uh, or one person has signed off or two people have signed mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. And mm. that way um, there was no fourth option that's not representable. Uh, yeah. Because if you have this, now you have to check. And so that's another if statement, yeah. and it just multiplies your thing. Um, I mean, about I think, uh, I think Zach uh, Telman's tweet or somebody retweeted Zach's tweet like every boolean eventually becomes an enumeration, <laughs> right? <So. laughs> exactly. Yes, and they they say the same thing in the Haskell world. Yeah. You know, they yeah. say um, you, you're using a boolean, but you might need three, and so what are you going to do? Wrap it in a maybe? Mm. You know, that's yeah. one. <laughs> You know, and it's like, no, that's, you, you should, you need a new type, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, a, a compl common complaint in Haskell is like everything you do requires a new type. <laughs> uh, yeah. About optionality, um, mm. uh, just, just for context, 
Um, Ritiki was talking about the maybe type uh, and how it didn't solve the problem that he wanted to solve, which was um, a program that will evolve over time. And if it evolves to where an argument is not needed, but still acceptable, so it's optional now, um, in a language that would you, if you, if you used Haskell, you would need to now wrap that in a maybe, but that's a type change. And so that requires all the clients of your API to change. And there's various workarounds, you know, and, and I, I've talked to Haskell people and they say it's unfair. And I think that it's not unfair. He was complaining about this one type and, and that is a limitation of the type. And we as an industry need to learn to accept limitations like that. It is a, is a true statement, whether there's workarounds in the language or not. It wasn't, he wasn't talking about like Haskell is bad or anything like that. He was just saying this one type has this limitation and we should recognize that, which I, 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 I agree with completely. Um, I don't, I don't know what else to say about it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that maybe is a good thing for modeling. If you do know, um, if you do know, ooh, what do I want to say? Like you have a fixed domain that you're modeling and you, and things don't evolve. Um, hmm. but it has to be where the optionality is baked into the domain. Hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not an, it's not where, um, you're like discovering whether it's optional or this thing might evolve. And so you don't know whether you're going to return it or not. It, it shouldn't, hmm. it shouldn't be used for stuff like that. I think one of the, one of the problems, I think that maybe is Haskell of, that people have got a point about is that like a lot of closure programs are not monadic in the, in this sort of Haskell-y sense, you know, they're not optional. They don't, you know, you've got, you've got these, like you were talking about earlier on about these data pipelines, you know, and you can map this, filter that, do the other. And it, it's, it's all great until suddenly you get a null pointer exception in the middle and then you're fucked, you know, excuse my French, you know, we get, but might as well get a fuck out in the, uh, you know. <laughs> I know it's been like over an hour. It's, I don't know what happened. <laughs> Usually it's like the first 30 seconds. Yeah, I think I think we were yes. recording at that point when VJ got <laughs> I uttered the magical words to open this podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so what I, what I was going to say was that, you know, that, that's kind of like that, you know, and I think people do get upset about that. You know, when they sometimes leave closure because of this, even they get so upset that right. they get these null pointer exceptions and they're just like, they're going to fuck it mode. You know, forget it. I just can't take it anymore. I can't take tracking down null pointer exceptions. Um, yeah. And, and, I, and I, if I'm honest, I think closure is, is, is annoying in that respect as well, that it doesn't give you more context. Um, you know, I think this is a solvable problem by the compiler. Um, but, you know, we always joke this about apropos, you know, is that, you know, I think they once said that a closure is optimized for correct programs, but it means it's not optimized at all, in my opinion. I know anyway. the emails you're going to get. Oh, fuck them. Yeah. Anyway. Send all emails 
to Ray. Oh, we, 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 don't, we don't listen to people's feedback at all. I think that's what we are, we're trying to say, actually. <laughs> if we listen to people's feedback, we wouldn't still be doing this. You know, come on. <laughs> exactly. I think they, they, they would have, I, they, they told us already, like, after the first episode, what, what the fuck is this? Stop it. <laughs> but now we are here after three years. 56 episodes, so, you know, we, we might as well get get on with it. <laughs> we, will, we will take guest requests, that's all. You know, that's... <laughs> otherwise we don't read the reviews. Anyway, so uh, coming back, to, coming back to, to optionality, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think one of the nice things about this show um, is that we are able to just, you know, voice, you know, real talk, if you like, you know, that yeah. it's a problem with closure, in my opinion. And it's, it is. You know, we might as well just put it on the table there. Um, it's fixable, you know, with, and I think they've acknowledged this, it's fixable with uh, like a development version of the compiler or some, you know, some suboptimal performance. You, you uh. could fix this problem. Um, but they don't do it for every, yeah. that's up to them. You know, there are engineering efforts and costs and trade-offs and, you know, what gets first in the queue, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But the point is it's not done, whereas, you know, in other programming languages it is done. So you ne- you don't get this kind of like this, this random no point is in the middle of a pipeline. Sure, sure. Or if it's in a language like Java where you still have a lot of null pointer exceptions, you're not doing yeah. some like super high order right. operation where you're like looking at the stack trace, like I don't know where my code is and where the compilers or not the compiler, but the built-in, you know, the map. You're doing a map, except it's lazy. So it's it doesn't yeah. doesn't null doesn't get you until later in your code. Like <laughs> and the function that you pass is an anonymous function. So it's like not has, doesn't have a name, it just has a number and you're like, I don't know what what function that is. But this is this is a problem in Haskell as well, right? It's it's it's, it's anywhere the, the laziness adds additional complexity to this uh, to this problem. Yeah, I mean, you don't have this exact problem because there's yeah. no null in the language. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I think that that's that's another thing to like tease apart. I had to do this myself. I was very confused. Haskell, hmm. it's not the type system that is protecting you from null pointer exceptions. There just is no null. There's no yeah. value called null. And so they, because they don't have a null, but they want to represent optionality, um, Mm -hmm. they they have maybe and other stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. So then the problem is the maybe brings back a lot of the issues with null. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you might not have um, a null pointer exception, but if you have a nothing, you don't know where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if they're chained together, and you're doing some, you know, you're using maybe as a monad, like somewhere in that chain, it it became, became a nothing. nothing, and then the rest was just skipped. Yeah. And so it yeah. do have like these similar problems. You know, people will say, yeah, but at least you knew that that was a positive. Like I don't, I don't buy that. I knew I, every every line of code I have could have a null pointer exception. You know, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I sympathize with closure programmers. Uh, because uh, like especially new people like I don't get them that much mm. Um, mm. and so it's one of these things like I've developed all these disciplines that I'm not even aware of anymore of mm. like just always it's always in the back of my mind what happens if this returns null what is it is is it gonna fall through is it gonna do something mm. um, like is it gonna do the right thing basically if a null happens and often, I find that the closure built-ins do the right thing. 
sometimes mm-hmm. they don't, right? So you you know you can't always just check. You know the classic is I'm going to filter for identity, mm-hmm. right? Well, but what if there's booleans in there and there's going to be some falses? So now you're mm-hmm. mixing the nils and the falses. You're throwing them all out. So now you need to think. Oh no, I need to filter nils out. So nil question mark, um, or I guess you would remove nil question mark. So you yeah. know, there's there's things like that. These little habits that I have that I don't even I don't even have them conscious enough to just list them. But I do have to say, over time, you don't get them as You've much. You've got a null sympathy. <laughs> I I, just, I I mean for 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 me it is not that much of a problem. I know you're just, yes. but for me it is not a problem that requires like oh maybe I should go to another language. Like it's just not that level. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's a, it's a trade-offs, right? Because the the other advantages that you get with the immutability and the and the way that you can fluidly write code, I think it makes sense to have some. I mean. We are saying that closure has its flaws, but they are completely manageable. I think the difficulty with with Eric's point of view, though, and you know, I, I agree with it that there, you can develop certain habits. I think the difficulty of it is when you're in a team and you've got like yeah. five or six people all committing code and they haven't yeah. got those habits, and maybe you're not very disciplined in your PR process. Right. And then, then you've got issues, you know, because then then other people are like they're not exactly breaking your code, but they're they're putting the possibility of nulls in there that you don't know about. And that's, you know, and I mean, very rare. I mean, I know that you do a lot of work on your own, Eric, for books and for yeah. podcasts and stuff like that, but you also do consulting. So, you know, I think a lot of us do work in teams of like, you know, three, sure. four, five, six people. And then, you know, it, it has to be named. You have to be able to do things in a certain way. That's true. I, I totally, uh, I totally agree with that. Like, um, you and you want to be able to have, let's say, a junior, you know, like new hire and fresh to closure contribute. And if you're yeah. just always worried that they're going to be introducing null pointer exceptions because it's so hard, they don't have all the disciplines yeah. yet. Um, it's nice that our our conclusion is that it's other people that is the problem. <laughs> well, well. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you know, like uh, you know, what it's other people mostly. You know? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm fine. Fuck it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it, it. Who was it? It was um, uh, what's his name? The guy from ID Software was giving that talk on functional programming for a while. He he was learning Haskell and Scheme, and he he said he really liked Scheme, but the reason he would go with Haskell. John Carmack. Yeah, John Carmack. Yeah, thanks. He was saying that, you know, with a sufficiently big team of developers, like every bad habit is going to come out. Exactly. And so you want as much, you know, help. You know, this is the kind of company they're writing in C and C++. They buy those million dollar like bug finder packages, you know, that like do static analysis on your code and tell you, oh, this for loop, like it might, it has this one case where it might skip a, you know, and and, like go into an infinite loop. Like they, they are investing in that. And so something like Haskell to, you know, to them is, is much more like, well, let's, let's give the programmers a little, like, let's put this closer to the programmers so they can solve their own problems, not catch Mm -hmm. it later. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I have also heard uh, really smart Haskellers say that what the reason they like the type system is because they can be like, you know, a, a kung fu black belt level Haskell person and yeah. develop a type. So they invent a new type that's like a monad with stack. And like they, they make the type that they know is correct. And then mm. at least they know that no one else can do harm. Right. So it's yeah. a way of multiplying their knowledge out because now it's it's in the code and the compiler is checking it. And so even if they can't, they might not be able to figure out how to get their code to compile, at least they're not <laughs> thinking they got something right <laughs> and pushing it to production. Um, I I I have to sympathize with that in a very in the practical sense because I have been on teams like that where um you know, most people were working at a very high level and then the juniors were not able to contribute because the, um, the, the, the stuff was just over their head. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stuff mm -hmm. we were doing was like high level closure stuff. And every time we would like, they would contribute something and, you know, pull request, the comments would be like, Oh, but like, Oh, this is going to crash in this case, in this case. And it was just too much. It was too much we weren't getting anything good out of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it makes you think like, well, that's why everyone wants senior closure programmers. It's like, yeah, <laughs> everybody, I think closure is senior people's code or senior people's programming language. It almost sounds like, you know, you, you get to use after you're 65 and you get some discounts and shit. And all <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I mean, even the stuff like, you know, are uh, an atom, a simple atom. The mm -hmm. contract is, you know, pass swap a pure function and it'll be fine. That's it. It's like, yeah. it's not much to think about mm -hmm. except, you know, what if you don't, I don't even know what happens if you don't, I always pass it a pure function, you know, but what if it does a def inside that function? Like what is going <laughs> to happen? It's going to be called, I don't know. And that's, yeah. that's the kind of thing that people do when they're first learning closure. And that's, that's totally fine. It's just, you know, nothing's checking. But I think, I think the in this case, I think you know there are there are sort of uh, levels of uh, checking that you can do. Like I think, like the CLJ Condor stuff and the other bits and pieces that you know the um, the linters, they're definitely pretty good. If you know, but like you say, there are certain the interoperability things where nulls can creep in, or certain use cases where a, a certain function will produce a null, but other variants will not. They're very slippery. They're very difficult to to encode necessarily because one isn't necessarily wrong. It's just yep. wrong in a certain context, you know. Yeah, and people are used to languages that. Um, well, okay, I I have to say it's similar to JavaScript, mm. where there are parts of the language that are like no no nos don't use that. Um. And there's a lot of stuff that you kind of have to use because it's there's no other option. So you have to like become an expert in this. Like, what are all the ways that you know this can go wrong? Yeah. Uh, what are all the ways that you can um, abuse like the plus operator and get weird values out? You have to know this. 
Um, well, what's, you know, there's stuff equals like equals and equals equals and equals equals equals. Right, you have to use equals 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 everywhere, not the double double no, double equals. And um, it's I I think that the, what we have and that I like have internalized and don't don't think it's that big of a deal, but it probably is, is very mm. similar to in JavaScript. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we still need discipline. So. Yes. Yeah. Whereas in Haskell, um, I mean, you know, I guess you could say at least you don't have that. I would love to see though a bridge between the, mm. the untyped and the typed. I would love to see, um, I would love to see more experimentation in type systems. You know, when mm. when Ritchie gave that talk, it was called "Maybe Not." If you want to look it up, mm. um, one thing that I think got overlooked was he actually showed an example of a type system that did what he expected. Mm. So it's it was in Kotlin. Kotlin yeah. That in Kotlin, you put a question mark after the type, and it makes it an optional which means it allows nulls, okay? But it's checked by the compiler. Mm. So if you don't check for the null, then it'll complain to you. It won't compile. Mm -hmm. uh, and clients, yeah. what's that? It won't break the clients. And then, right, if you add a question mark, mm. it doesn't change the, the, uh, the clients. Mm. They don't have to change any of their code because they were already passing it. It's, it's optional, but mm. it's accepted. And so they're fine. And I think that, uh, what do I want to say? Like that kind of statement, even though he made it and it was very clear and there were slides about it, mm. it just like people just totally overlook it, right? They want to focus on like, why are you bashing on Haskell? You know, Haskell is this and Haskell is that and it's good. It's like, it's so annoying. It's, I know the level of discourse we have is just so bad. And I want to see more of that. I want to see more, um, a, I guess, developing type systems with practical use cases in mind. And I think that that Kotlin example is, is, is a great example of what I'm trying to say. It's like these people are writing a language for Java interop. They know that there's going to be nulls everywhere. Mm. Like it's just mm. the nature of Java. And they need them. They need nulls sometimes. Mm. And so they they developed a type system that had a very practical, like the type system itself has a notion of null. Mm. Whereas mm. in Haskell, like I said, there's no null. And so they they used you could you could write maybe, right? Yeah. You could write it yourself mm. in Haskell. So it's not built in. Mm. It's like not anyway, I'm I'm rambling now, <laughs> but I think I, I would like to see um, a bridge like, mm. you know, I want Haskellers or type theorists to work in an untyped language and, and see, oh, I see it. It gives me this freedom that I didn't have in my type system that is actually really useful. How can I take this back? How can I yeah. make this safe? So you think it's yeah. always a kind of, I mean, you know, we, we, we have like functional programming meetups and it, you know, we always you know we watch we look at Haskell talks and Elm and stuff like this, but it always ends up boiling down to productivity versus correctness, or like mm, you know, the fact yeah. that you just want to be able to experiment with something, you want to be able to explore something. 
you know, you can do that in Clojure very easily and JavaScript as well. But in other languages, more type languages like Scala and Haskell, you've, there's a lot more formality around getting things right before you start programming, before you start playing with things or experimenting with things. And it's, I think right. it's, that's a, that's a very difficult, um, what should we say, bridge to cross, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that, so like Haskell, I mean, what if you had an un unsafe Haskell? Like what if you had an untyped Haskell? So you defined a semantics for what it's supposed to do mm -hmm. uh, without the types, right? So like, you know, just made it a dynamically typed language similar to Clojure, right? It's meant to be an experimental ground for compilers, so why not? Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so you just define, look, this is what it would do. Uh, and so now we don't have to, we could run it without checking the types. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the Haskell does have a thing where you can run it without checking. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like actually being at a REPL, being able to, to like construct Haskell, uh, you know, expressions, mm -hmm. get some JSON from some random API that you know very little about, and start working with it um, in it's without knowing the types. You don't know the types yet. You know, you know, one, one thing that people bring up when I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago about how uh, Haskell is difficult to work. It, it makes it hard to work with JSON because you need to like fully type it <laughs> before you can. And like, it's not, uh, people will say, well, how do you work with JSON where you don't know anything about it? And that's not the point. Mm. It's You do know a lot about it. Mm. It's just how difficult is that to express in the type system, mm. right? Like mm. I know that I work with, say, the WordPress API, and it gives you JSON, mm. and it gives you sometimes, like if there's a, like what we might call a null, well, sometimes it gives you false. And sometimes it gives yeah. you an empty array, right? So it gives you null, false, or empty array, and these are all kind of equivalent. Well, how do you express that in Haskell? Like, this is this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, or it'll say, well, if we have this key, then this other thing is going to be of this type. But if we have this key, and it's a number, well, then this other thing is it's like, okay, we know a lot about it. We could express it in English, but how do we express that in the Haskell type system? That's the kind of thing that 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 I'm that I, I think the bridge needs to happen on. Like, I mean, I, I just I will say it like this: it's probably wrong. It's probably a generalization, but the people working on Haskell compiler, you know, extending the type system, are academics. They're probably not hitting WordPress API. <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah. I think the solution is that don't use WordPress API. Right. Much, uh, right. We just... So, look, look, look. We, my God, we're, uh, we, we, we can talk to you forever. We, so, you're going to have to come back in the third time, you know. In... Yeah, when the book is published, maybe. It'll be, <laughs> I hope not in two and a half years. Really, uh, like one zero. When it's out of alpha, we'll have you back, okay? That's right, right. kind of like we can take that bet. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you won't be back yeah. next week. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> 
So um, maybe I think it's a, it's a nice time to tell people where can actually oh, yes, find the yeah. book. Now we finally get there. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the book is called Grokking Simplicity. It's published at Manning. Yeah. Uh, so if you're you know buying from, it's only available on Manning.com right mm. now. But if you go to lispcast.com slash GS for Grokking Simplicity, mm. uh, that'll take you right to the page. Um, if you want 50% off, I have a code. Uh, it's TS Simplicity. One word. Just when you check out, you can put that in. It'll give you 50% off. I think it'll also give you 50% off of everything. So if you want to buy a couple other books yeah. too. Is that a special definite offer? Uh, no, it's not a special offer. I mean, even if it was a special offer, like it would just be a different code. Fifty <laughs> percent off is, seems to be pretty common in Manning. <laughs> so it is on the Meep then. It's already, on Meep. Or? Yeah. So the first five chapters are out. Um, I'm a, I'm a actually a little ahead. What's the Manning that? Early Meep. Access Program. Yeah, Manning Early yes. Access Program. So you. You, if you buy it now, you'll get uh, an email every time the uh, new edition comes out, okay. and mm. so yeah, you'll get the you'll get it all. And then you can even buy the print book now, and you'll get the ebook. Uh, so you'll get the updates as they come out, and then when it's finally printed, it'll just like I get the mail one day, like oh look, I remember this. Mm. <laughs> They're like, get it for Christmas for somebody, but you don't know when. Christmas 2021. <laughs> um, I think it's when you get the book, it's Christmas. Right? Oh, there you go. That you see. I'm getting better at marketing. Yeah. <laughs> better salesperson than me. Yeah. So go to lispcast.com slash GS yeah. for yeah. ghost. Mm-hmm. Sorry. For Grocking simplicity. simplicity. Yeah. So that's where you can get the book. Um, I think it's uh, wow, it's one and a half hour. I mean, time time is just flying. I mean, we could, as Ray said, we could we could talk for hours. And I know Ray had all these topics built up, all these tough <laughs> tough questions. Yeah, I think that's what we ask here: tough questions, yeah. hard, no tough. softies, <laughs> only so googlies. I know exactly. <laughs> And and um, just a quick uh, shout out to other things. So so you do apropos every now and then. So that's on apropos that's YouTube channel. That's right. Uh, we'll put the link somewhere where you can uh, see and um, uh, where Ray tries to solve computer programs. Two D, you can see yeah, you can actually see it and then see how Eric and um, Mike and who else yeah. is there already? Mia, sorry, yeah. So they can try to solve the problems. They, they, they try to solve the problems and then show you better closure code. And uh, Eric, what is your podcast? Uh, Lispcast.com slash podcast. It's called Thoughts on Functional Programming. Yeah. So go and check out uh, Thoughts on Functional Programming. Um, I think eventually it will be rebranded to Thoughts on Simplicity. <laughs> as so it's going to be there pretty soon, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> So that's it uh, from us for for this year. And it's been, I think, almost three years. Uh, and it's a nice, uh, fantastic episode to wrap up our year with, with a repeat guest, Eric. Uh, thank you for sharing all your time and, uh, and, and all these uh, amazing discussions. And hopefully somebody will pick up the idea of, you know, making closure more Haskell-like or making Haskell more closure-like. <laughs> I've had that idea, type system for closure. 
Ooh. But yeah. So who has the time? There, there is a time <laughs> system for time. closure, but you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, done a PhD in it. I mean, these things are these things have been trodden. The ground has been poured before. So yeah. you know, shout out to him. Yeah, yeah. So that's it from us for episode number fifty-six, and uh, we'll be back in the new year, twenty twenty. We're gonna have flying cars episodes. in Devon on twenty twenty for sure. Mm. <laughs> exactly. You can you can tune into. Yes, autonomous flying cars and uh, flying cyber trucks and shit and whatnot. And um, <laughs> yeah, and, and a big, big thank you for all our uh, patrons and uh, who have been helping us in, in yeah. covering the costs. And uh, we look forward to um, your suggestions. Uh, if you have any complaints, um, just uh, redirect to DevNow and uh, we'll be there. Uh, to, we'll to definitely be hanging around in the <laughs> void, yes. In, in an hour. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Eric. You're welcome. Thank you. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year and Merry Christmas.